What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Welcome back, my friends. I hope you're having a fantastic day summer. I took a few weeks off of podcasting to be with family and I am so excited to be back in your earbuds and wow what a really great episode I have for you upon my return. This is a really great conversation with an amazing soul who I'm very blessed to now know. Dr. Talia Miran Schatz and I will just say at the outset here that the way that she pronounces her beautiful name is exponentially better than what I just did. So when she comes on, you'll see she really has a beautiful name. um, And I did not do that justice. But Talia is an author, consultant, speaker, and researcher. She has a PhD in psychology and is an internationally acclaimed expert in medical decision making with notable experience in both academia and in the healthcare industry. She has over 60 academic publications, that's six zero, on happiness and medical decision-making, spanning information comprehension, patient participation and shared decision-making, assessment of birth experiences, happiness, and more. Her uncommonly broad perspective has crystallized into a worldview that sees health as a joint venture. That is, patients, doctors, and the medical institutions should all partake in ensuring that information is conveyed, choice is constructed, and interactions are handled in a way that optimizes health and medical decision-making. Talia has written a book and is now an author. We talk about this in the podcast as well. It is coming soon, and it's called Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. I absolutely loved having Talia on. It was a really great perspective that I hadn't had yet. I have spoken with patients, with healthcare providers, but not really anybody who came at it from a psychological and healthcare decision-making standpoint. And so I really appreciated her insights. I know you will love this episode and have so many takeaways. You actually might want to have a notepad nearby you. That's how amazing this was. So here we go with Talia. All right. I am so, so excited and honored to have Dr. Talia. And I am not going to pronounce her last name. I'm going to let her do it because it is so beautiful (laughs) and I just cannot give it any justice. So um, I'm so excited to have you on Dr. Talia. Go ahead and introduce yourself with your name and the beautiful way you say it. (laughs) So Dr. Talia Miron Schatz. It's just beautiful. Or or Myron Schatz as (laughs) would say that. And, And either is good. That's, That's probably probably the best I, I would have done is that second option. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm so, so happy to have you on. Your work has really intrigued me. And so I know that this will be packed with goodness. So let's go ahead and start. As I start with each of my episodes, I ask my guests, what does true wellness mean to you? Mm, oh my God. I could spend probably a week on that. Um, I think true wellness is being at peace with who you are. 
anywhere you are. And that's enormous. And I remember when I was at Princeton University, we had a cleaning lady, her name was Lil. She was a funky little cleaning lady and she ruled the floor with her sponge and her things. And she was so at one and at peace with herself. She knew who she was. She respected everybody and everybody respected her. That's such a great example that it doesn't matter what your credentials are. It matters how you feel about yourself. So that's, that's like a, a great symbol for me of, of true wellness. Mm, yes. Love that. And love the, the taking the labels out that the labels um, don't necessarily play into true wellness. And I would have to agree with that. So that's fantastic. Let's uh, dive into your background. So what led you, I love the work you do, and we're going to dive all into the amazing um, research that you do, but let's first dive into what led you to it. So what, what, what is your background and where did the passion come from? Um, I have a PhD in social psychology. And I did not think I would be doing what I'm doing, which is working on medical decision-making. I stumbled upon it. And I think it happens to many people more than we realize when we're younger, that sometimes you just stumble upon something and then it becomes your passion. So as a PhD student, I was invited to teach genetic counselors, genetic counseling students. And I said, okay, let, let me sit in on a consultation. And I did. And I sat in on a consultation with a great counselor who I admire and who is knowledgeable and compassionate and wonderful. And there was a couple who came in for consultation um, with their daughter and there was more going on in the room, a little room, pretty dark. A lot of information was going on there. She, the counselor gave them a ton of information, very professional, very good, very clear, but a lot of it, and a lot of it was new to them. And it was about their pregnancy whether or not there would be a certain condition with the child. And then they left. They left and I thought, whoa, what's, what's gonna happen now? How much of this do they remember? How much of this do they remember accurately? And that was really kind of alarming to me because I realized that unlike many experiences I had or maybe you listeners had where the healthcare professional doesn't have all the time in the world and doesn't give all the information here. It was presumably an ideal situation, but really it wasn't. And I didn't think they would remember all of it or most of it. And I thought, wait a minute, there's, there's something, there's a disconnect. What's going on here? I think that's what sparked my interest. And that became, it sort of hijacked me basically is what I'm saying. I didn't think that's what I would be doing but it knocked on my door, this idea of helping people with medical decisions and helping make these situations better and more user-friendly for everyone involved, because it's not fun for the counselor either to have spent an hour with people who may or may not have understood her. So that became my passion to make these things better. Mm, I love that. I love when these types of journeys start with and sort of an emotional reaction and attachment to an event like that. And it wasn't 
like forethought. Those are always the most powerful stories in my opinion. Um, although I love, I love also the, you know, the story of the kid who wanted to be X, Y, Z starting at, you know, age five, but these stories I just think are so powerful because again, it's not anything that you had lined out for yourself. You didn't put it on a vision board. It just kind of happened in the moment. And so I really appreciate and respect that that then informed your journey moving forward. You, um, use the term decision scientist to describe your role mm-hmm. and passion. That's not a term that I have personally heard before. And I'm guessing that may be the case for some of my audience. So I would love for you to describe kind of what that means. What is a decision scientist? Thank you so much for asking. It's a question that doesn't, uh, doesn't occur a lot, but it should. Um, so I think everyone knows what a social psychologist is. It's a person who looks at how people decide and choose and react And maybe you've heard the sexier term, if I may, behavioral economist, which applies oftentimes to people who just use psychological insights and principles in their work. So I'm a decision scientist. That means that my PhD is in social psychology. I look at how people form judgments. In my case now, it's about medical issues, but in my PhD dissertation, it was about something that we all encounter. And that is, how do you form an opinion about a job candidate? So that's a decision scientist looking at, does it matter? For example, if I said something in passing about the candidate, and then I said, oh, but just ignore that and just listen to her now or review her file, just ignore what I said. Can you ignore? Are you capable of that? Or are you human and therefore biased by this information? And if you're human and therefore biased, how can I now de-bias you? How can I undo the fact that you were exposed to information? So this applies to job hunts and job interviews and HR. This also applies in the judicial context. And there's work with juries, even with judges, where they are sometimes influenced by cues and things that are not really supposed to influence their opinions. But as I said, they are human. So that's what decision scientists do. Um, some, some things within that to make it a little less abstract. So the example I gave of that initial information of just saying, oh, you're going to meet Melissa. She's great. See how you like her. Dude, I just made Melissa's life very easy because you are going to meet her and you will be biased in favor of Melissa. If Melissa is tongue-tied, you'll say, oh, she's so sweet. She's shy. She's warming up. But let's say I don't like Melissa and no offense to all the Melissas that are listening right now. (laughs) And I say, oh, Claudia, you're going to meet Melissa. Well, I hope it goes well because, you know, she's not the brightest ball. And poor Melissa walks in. She doesn't know that. She's tongue tied and you think, well, of course, she doesn't have anything to say. She doesn't even understand the question. I mean, oh, that's really difficult. And that's the nature of our thought systems. We latch on to something and then we like to prove ourselves right. That's called the confirmation bias. I tell you she's great, you look for reasons why she's great. I tell you she's terrible, you look for reasons why she's terrible. And you can look at the same behavior and interpret it in a way that will prove you right. So that's part of what decision scientists do and will delve more into it as we talk about it in the context of medical decision-making. 
Mm. I think choice will, will come up quite a lot in this conversation. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and I, I actually just talked about confirmation bias a few episodes ago. So that's a perfect um, tie in. Well, by the time this publishes, it'll be quite a few episodes ago. But I really um, love that tangible example, because I think we can all relate to having been biased by somebody else, or even being the person who might be by it, biasing yeah. somebody else based <laughs> on our, our opinion. So I, I think we can all relate to that, which is super helpful. Um, so yeah, I would love to know how your work has now transitioned into, is it strictly in the medical field now? So is medical decision-making your sole focus and what does that look like on the day-to-day? What does your actual work entail in that field? Mm -hmm. It entails a number of things and it's actually very broad. Um, I get bored easily and that's (laughs) good because no, really, because the world of medical decision-making is there's there's so much to it. Um, What it entailed for a while was writing my book, which we'll talk about. Your life depends on it, what you can do to make better choices about your health. So that was accumulating, aggregating all of my research. By all of my research, I mean more than 60 academic papers and many, many, many more academic papers by other researchers. Um, So I do research and I write and I teach. That's fascinating. All of these are fascinating. And I work within the health industry. So I give talks to medical teams, to doctors, to nurses, to all sorts of people who need to understand how patients think. And it's, it's fascinating. Um, last week, I gave a talk to nurses. And they deal with multiple sclerosis. And and I said, I'm not going to give a single example for multiple sclerosis because you know it so much better than me in your sleep if we talk about it. And I'm just going to talk about other things. So what I did was I gave them a slide and made some of them close their eyes. And I gave the others a slide with a lot of information about Mercedes-Benz, about a Jeep from Mercedes-Benz. And they look at it and they're like, is this in English? <laughs> because it was, it was very technical. And they said, of course, you sell a car. You also need to be technical, right? They did not understand a word. And then I said, what, so tell me, explain to your friends who weren't looking, explain to them about the car. And they said, uh, it's a Mercedes. Uh, it's a Jeep. It has eight horsepowers. And it has some technical info. That's not that's super informative, right? Some technical info. Thank you. And I said, uh-huh. So that was complicated, right? And one of the nurses said, oh, my God, is this how our patients feel about medical information? And that was such an aha moment. It was so beautiful. It's exactly what I was getting at the ability to explain, to put medical teams, be they nurses, doctors, and and sometimes very high level executives in the patient's shoes to understand why you need to change the way you convey information to patients. And it's not, it's sometimes tempting to say, well, people should try harder. I mean, really, like it's their body. Can't they, you know, look it up or no, they can't look it up because if they look it up on Wikipedia, it's complicated. If they look it up elsewhere, you no, know, God knows what they're gonna find. Sometimes they find some wacky things. 
So my mission is really to explain what the barriers are that patients encounter, divide them, define them, explain what these are and how they can be overcome and tell patients what they can do about it, tell doctors what they can do about it and tell healthcare systems what they can do about it. So I do that in my writing and giving talks and speaking to you right now. That's what my day-to-day life looks like. Um, There's another component which is fascinating and it's rarely talked about. Um, A lot of people use devices, sometimes to measure their glucose level, sometimes to measure their heart rates, various medical or health devices. There's a lot of thinking, a lot of thought that goes behind these devices. Likewise, if you are on an employee wellness program, and a lot of us are because our employers pay for our healthcare um, insurance and they want our premium to be low. It's low if we're healthier. So we are on these programs and someone has to plan the programs. Someone has to decide what's on the program, what's included, what's paid for, what's not, what's the incentive structure, how to get us to use it over a while. So it's not like various things. I won't, I won't say, I won't name names because I don't want people to say to be like, oh my God, how does she know? You know, all those things that you buy yourself or get for Christmas and then you never use or you use them for a week. So someone has to come behind the scenes like me who's a decision scientist who's a psychologist and look at the mechanisms look at how the information is conveyed to you if someone says well your whatever level is 103 is that good is that bad how did we get there how do we avoid getting to 105 or maybe 105 is fine someone has to translate this into action into knowledge into emotion into behavior and that's someone many, many times is me. Mm, I love that. Um, I, again, really great tangible examples. I can actually put myself in the room with the nurses and the Mercedes Benz details <laughs> that I, I too would not understand. And so I think we can all relate to that where it's like, you know, when I work with lawyers to draft up contracts and patient agreements, mm. I don't speak that language. I don't, I mean, I, I rely on that person. And although I can read the contract, I still... I mean, there's still parts of that that are like foreign to me. And so I, I definitely can relate. And I am trusting too, that the audience can relate to, to just the reality of this from a patient side and add in the fact that, you know, we're sitting here trying to figure out, or the nurses were trying to figure out mm-hmm. Mercedes Benz information right. while they're otherwise healthy. So add into yes. that, that we're not feeling well, and we aren't of the, of a clear mind. And it's, it, it just adds more layers of confusion. So, oh, yes. Um, what a powerful, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Super powerful example. Okay. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned your book, which just to remind the audience and I'll have all, all the information in the show notes is your life depends on it. What you can do to make better choices about your health. And you just talked a little bit about some of like the obstacles and mm-hmm. you, um, in your book talk about, um, you know, some of the generational differences, specifically, you talk about how your father didn't question the doctor's authority. And I'm sure many of us can find parallels of that in our own families. And I actually talk to my clients a lot about this because I often have adult children of elderly parents who, Mm -hmm. you know, are are facing the same thing. They want a patient advocate for their family member, but their family member is like, you know, no, I, I just, I'm trusting this authority figure and I don't need anybody else involved in this. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about generational differences and, and what 
what your understanding is of that playing a role in, in this field. Yeah. So I'm really glad you brought it up. I think there are many gaps. I think, you know, I, I, I started out, I think, by talking about how we became healthcare consumers with, with like air quotes to healthcare consumers, because presumably we can consume and we can question and we can compare, but that's not always the case and that's not really the case. So for older people, with sometimes people from more authoritative cultures, the idea of asking a doctor a question or saying, is there an alternative is unacceptable. It's like you're undermining the doctor's authority. And let's think about it for a second. If the doctor is going to cut you up, be it your, your brain, your abdomen, your knee, do you really want to aggravate them? So we perceive it as more of a generational issue and it is, of course it is, but it actually is more prevalent than what we want to, than what we want to think. Um, the healthcare system tried to combat this a while ago. They had uh, suggested questions. They had something called Ask Me Three, where you're supposed to ask the doctor some questions about the suggested treatment. But I find that a bit problematic because that's the doctor putting the onus on the patient. And what if the patient doesn't feel right about that? And what if they're not sure? And to what degree is that helping them? So I came up with a different set of questions. Ask me about what matters. And these questions are, what are the risks? And I start with the risks, because if someone is doing something to me, I want to know what the risks are. Then the benefits. Okay, tell me about the benefits, but first tell me about the risks. What am I potentially losing here? And the third question, that's the trickiest one. What are the alternatives? So why am I tying this in with the generational issue? Because if you are taught to ask, what are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the alternatives? Then you don't feel like asking about alternatives is undermining the doctor's authority or their knowledge. You're not belittling them. You're just asking a question and that's legitimate. And to be honest, People don't like to lie. Most people don't like to lie. So they may not want to tell you about the alternatives and they may not volunteer this information. But if you ask, they're going to cooperate and they're going to answer. And maybe they'll say, for example, in the context of knee surgery, um, the alternative is physical therapy. And then you say, oh, okay, because my first question was what were the risks? And you said that there's a long rehabilitation period and I don't like that risk. So what are the benefits that I'll be able to walk? Does physical therapy have similar benefits? Okay, so now I'm at a better position to understand and to decide. And there are two things I really want to emphasize here. The only thing that I think is is a must is for the patient to be able to receive information in a way that allows them to decide. Okay, and it sounds very legalese, I'll, I'll, I'll parse it a bit. So what does it mean to be able to receive is that they're offered information. And they can say, you know what, doc? I don't wanna know, really, I, I, I don't. I'm not interested in knowing, I'm not a doctor. I'm scared, I'm in pain. I don't want to choose. And that I think should be an option. 
So they should be allowed, they should have the possibility to receive information in a way that they can understand and relate to and does not create a burden or an impossible burden on them. So by just asking about knee surgery, what are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the alternatives? You can get a much better picture of what you're up against and then you choose. So the first thing I said was people should be allowed to decide or not, whichever way they want. And the second thing is there are no right or wrong answers here. People have their preferences. Some people will say, I don't wanna do physical therapy. Forget it, it's not for me. It's not my personality type. Let's have surgery. Others will choose the other way around. And that's fine, it's their body. These are their preferences. As long as they know what they're up against. That's where, that's where my, jurisdi my jurisdiction stops at their choice, at what they decide. Mm, yes. Um, and complete in agreement with all of that. And I love the order of the questions, which is risks first, then benefits, then alternatives, and then repeat, right? Like you just mentioned, okay, well, now you've given me the alternatives. Now let's talk about the risks and benefits of the yeah. alternative. And it kind of, yeah. it makes it simple, but it also allows for a continuing conversation and an open door, which mm -hmm. um, is, is super valuable. And, and it, yeah, it really just keeps it simple because yeah. I agree that it's kind of, um, a hefty burden that the onus is on the, the patient to ask the questions, but, um, and on the same token, patients are going to have individual concerns and questions. And so, you know, it can't all be a one-way conversation. So I love the way that you broke that down. You, um, thank you. I, yeah. I, can, I, can I just say something? So first of all, yeah. thank you so much. And I love that you said simple and you said it twice. Thank you. That's a big compliment because in, in these situations where we're not sure and scared and overwhelmed, simplicity is great because we can resort to that. You know, you have to remember three words, you can do that. You have to remember 37 words, you're gonna get some of them wrong. So three words, risks, benefits, alternatives, that's something to memorize. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that's, that's the task for a lot of us in um, either the field you're in or in the actual fields of the healthcare professions is how to take something super complicated and make it simple. That's, that's the hardest, the hardest task we all have. So I, I definitely think that you have successfully done that, which is mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, you say in the book that you went on to study happiness. And there was one statement that kind of stood out to me. You said, I'm an optimist. And yet I was gradually <laughs> realizing how unfair it was to expect us all to speak up and to manage our medical choices on our own. So let's talk a little bit about just the system itself. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we kind of already talked about the onus being on the patient. Um, but what, you know, what are your thoughts on the sort of navigation of all of this. So you talked a little bit about the questioning, um, but you know, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned how it is, it's an expectation that we have to learn how to speak up and then manage all of these medical choices on our own. And so what are some of the strategies you talk also, I think in the book about repair as well as the ask me about what matters. So what are some of right. your strategies and advice? And I also just for the listeners love that at the end of each chapter, you talk about the takeaways for um, patients, healthcare providers, and the system itself. So this, you know, this is intended for the entirety of the system, which is so fantastic. <laughs> but so what are some of your thoughts on strategies to sort of improve on this and make things better? Mm -hmm. So first of all, yeah, really some of the strategies 
apply not to us. They apply to the powers that be. And it's, it's good and bad. I think we're always taught that you can if you think you can. And I say, uh-uh, not always, not really. Sometimes it's really hard. That's, that's a message that I want to bring to everyone who's ever sat in front of a doctor and said, oh, my God, well, I'm kind of dumb. I don't get this. You're not dumb. And you know what? Even people who are dumb are allowed to be sick and are allowed to understand what's going on with them. So that's, that's, I think, is one thing that should take away some of the guilt and some of the burden of why am I not managing this? That's one thing. Um, another thing is taking this as a premise and then saying, okay, so what should I know? What should I understand? Um, I talk a lot about health literacy and the fact that some of us have high health literacy, some of us have low health literacy. In fact, 90 million Americans are projected to have low health literacy. And that means that you could get things wrong. You could not understand whether or not you can drink or eat before a medical test or mess up your adherent, your medication schedule. So a good strategy here will be always to ask and to write things down or to ask for the doctor to write things down for you. Because one of the, one of the funniest things that happened to me was I interviewed a doctor. I interviewed her about her experiences as a patient. And she was talking and I was embarrassed. I didn't want to stop her when she said things I didn't understand. It turned out that I wrote every medical condition she mentioned wrong, other than bronchitis. I made so many mistakes because I didn't know it was the first time I'd ever heard these things and I was embarrassed to ask. And that was just plain wrong with me. Fortunately, I was with my laptop. I was typing everything down, albeit with mistakes, but I could figure it out. It, had I not had my laptop, had I not written things down, I would have been completely lost. So a really big message for patients is to ask the doctor to write things down for you in a legible writing that you can revisit that because as you said, we're sometimes very overwhelmed during the doctor's visit. Um, another really important strategy is to ask for numbers. When you're offered a treatment, ask how many people will it help? Because if that knee surgery helps 15 out of every 100 patients, well, that means it doesn't help 85 out of 100. That's the vast majority. Do I want this? I don't know. Maybe I want this, maybe I don't. But now that I have the numbers, I'm better capable of understanding. And numbers are hard because you can't argue with numbers and you have to come up with the numbers and doctors have to come up with the numbers. That's difficult because what do I mean by knee surgery? For whom? Is it an athletic injury? Is this an arthritic injury? Am I 70 years old? Am I 80 years old? Am I 37 years old? How much do I weigh? What physical shape am I in? It's hard to come up with the numbers. That's easier for the doctor to say, oh, well, you know, it's, it'll probably work or it's, it's going to be fine. But is that the information that I need in order to make a decision? Not really. Not really. So to the degree that they can say things like out of every hundred patients, an X amount will do much better. And that means that the Y amount will not. That should really help us and inform us. And I know it's a lot to ask. 
But the reason why I have those takeaways for patients, for doctors, and for healthcare systems is that we should push from all directions. If it's only the patients who say, oh, can you tell me this in a frequentist format, which means out of every 10,000 women who have who've had breast cancer surgery, how many will benefit from this treatment, from chemotherapy or from hormonal therapy? Oh, 40 will benefit or 4,000 will benefit. Different. If the demand comes from the entire system, things might change. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I wrote a book and why I speak and why I'm so vocal about this and so passionate about it. Do you know how much research there is about this topic? As, as my students like to say, it's a favorite answer, a ton. <laughs> There's a ton of research. I always say it's very accurate because it is. It's, it's, it just is. That's why I don't do so much research specifically on that anymore because we know, we know. What we now need to do is to implement. And we don't change things because we're used to them. It's funny, you know, it's mind boggling. When we talk, when someone gives us information in probabilities, when someone says there's, for example, and that's a very, very famous example from decision science, uh, there's a 30% chance of rain. You're not going to call the weather channel and say, what is this 30% chance of rain below me? Because it makes a lot of sense to you. But the truth is, when I ask people, so what does it mean? 30% chance of rain. Um, is it going to rain 30% of the time? Is it going to rain in 30% on 30% of the area? Or does it mean that on 30% of the days with such weather conditions, it rains? What do you think, Claudia, putting you on the spot? Here. That's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I don't know that I've ever put a whole lot of thought into it, which, which brings <laughs> up a really good point. <laughs> I, I, well, it's funny because I used to live in Washington state, Western Washington state, and it mm -hmm. rained all the time. So, <laughs> so when I think about seeing a 30% chance of rain, it's like, that's fantastic for thinking about where I used to live. Um, but, but what it truly means, um, you know, I, I don't know, based on an average of that that day, there is, um, you know, a 30% chance on that average that we will see any rain at all. But I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't Great. know. And I haven't put any thought into it. Amazing. I love everything you said. I love your honesty. <laughs> and I, really, it's, it's wonderful because that's why you or me or really nobody ever called the weather channel and says, what's with a 30%? We don't understand because we don't realize that we don't understand. The, the true answer, the scientific answer is that on 30% of the days with such weather conditions, it won't rain. And if you live where you used to live, I love what you said. You said, that's fantastic. <laughs> Why is that fantastic? Because usually it's like a 90% chance of rain and it messes up your hair every single day. And you're like 30%, I love it. That, that's what we do. That's what we do. We were not really created, our ancestors were not created with little laptops uh, attached to their fingers. We were created as just people hunting and gathering and surviving. And to do that, we use system one thinking that's quick and dirty and emotional. And that's what you used when you said, that's fantastic. I don't want to talk about the statistical meaning. Come on. I was, it's fantastic. It's much better than what I usually have. And that is great. 
And that's very real. And that's how we think. And that's how we view the world. But the world is a bit more complicated than that to really integrate all the information, which you probably shouldn't do when we're just talking about the weather. Because if you start dissecting every piece of information, you'll never leave the house. But to really do that, you need to use what is known as system two type of thinking, which is slower, which is more elaborate, which uses much more information. So that's the type of thinking where we incorporate all the information. And most of the time, we don't really use them. So we latch on to hints. So that's another thing. And you asked about strategies. So we use hints. We use cues from the environment to decide, to choose, and to determine the quality of things. For example, how do I decide if a doctor is good? That's really tricky, right? What do I know? Do I know their success rate? And if I know their success rate, is their success rate amazing? Because for knee surgery, they only take young people who are fit and have no comorbidities. What does that mean about me if I'm 75 and I weigh 270 pounds? I'm not, I'm not that person. I don't apply to the wonderful success rate. So what do we do when we look at doctors and surgeons and people who are going to have a major effect on our health? Because we use cues. Are they nice? Do they talk in a way that sounds smart? Do they have a lot of credits and credentials and things hanging on their wall? And even doctor rating platforms rely on these things. And they will ask you things like, was the staff friendly? Was the place clean? Was the office clean? Was there easy parking? But that's all there. That's all part of your physician's experience, but really when you're up for knee surgery or breast cancer issues or prostate, or, I'm sorry, I mean, like, this does come across as a bit depressing. I'm not a huge star at dinner parties mm. when I'm asked to talk about my profession. It's like, oh, well, you might want to be quiet now, Tali, because that's too <laughs> depressing. So when, when you try to gauge that about the doctor, that's really, what are they going to do to your health? That's the main thing. And we don't know. We just don't know, right? We know if they seem to be knowledgeable, if they're nice, if they make eye contact, these are the things that we gauge. And then when we view this in a doctor and it matters, really matters whether or not we connect to them as a person. But what did we learn about their medical capabilities? We should probably also try and gauge this before we go along with what they offer. So that's another very important piece of advice to give and just an insight into our views and how we form judgments as humans. And, and I say as humans, because guess what? We're all human. We all are. And this is how we form judgments, first and foremost. Hmm. All so powerful. And I love, I continue to love how you use tangible examples. And I, and I know that, you know, you're, you're a very uh, well-versed writer and speaker, and this, these are the talents that you have because, because you are painting a picture for us of stories that we can all relate to and examples we can relate to. We can take in the knowledge, process it and understand it in a better way. And so that's, I really appreciate appreciate that because it, it, it takes it from, from a very scientific uh, statistics kind of a, a talk to something that we can all relate to, which is fantastic. Um, the whole system is very 
blessed to have you helping us all understand it from your perspective. And I really love, I've never really talked to a decision scientist, somebody who's doing the work that you do. Normally I'm talking to either patients or healthcare professionals. So I really have appreciated your approach and your take on it and the way that you see the types of decision-making we need to do. And um, it's actually really quite amazing to, to hear from it, from your side. It's almost like there's another, there was a whole another side. I didn't, mm. a whole other side. I didn't even, um, I didn't even think about. So I think that's, you know, from, from the psychological and sociological perspective. So it's been really, really awesome hearing all of that. Um, before we start the process of wrapping up, I know before mm-hmm. we started recording, we mentioned quickly about the um, just realities of our mortality. And I recently was in an accident that made me face my mortality um, in a way that I had not necessarily had to uh, in any recent past. So um, I shared about that on my LinkedIn page. And, um, so I would love to talk a little bit about, and I know you already just mentioned that now nobody's going to want either of us at their party. (laughs) (laughs) We're too cool for everybody else. That's right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If they didn't tune out before they're definitely tuning out now. No, stick, (laughs) stick with me. Um, I used to be the person just to, just to relate to any audience members who can understand this. I used to be the person who would avoid any conversations on death because death was one of those things more. Our mortality was one of those things that we only faced when we absolutely had to. We only talked about it when it was an absolute necessity. And I have shifted that in years and in recent years and have been very, very blessed by that shift um, from a whole person standpoint. And, um, and so I really do think there is a lot of value. I've even had a death doula on here. And so I think there's a lot of value in approaching the subject of our mortality and, and on death. So I would love to know from your standpoint, your research, your work with, with the people that you work with and the mm-hmm. entire in the entirety of the system, what um, are some of your insights into, into our mortality? Right. So right. Nobody's going to want to talk to us at dinner parties. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about death, even on people's deathbeds. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. And that's also incredibly sad. Doctors don't want to aggravate patients. Patients don't want to disappoint their doctors by dying. Can you believe that? caregivers don't want to talk to mom or dad or their aunt or their spouse about, you know, you're going to be gone soon. Is there anything you want? How should we bridge this time? How do you want to be treated? What are your preferences? Because then it's like they're telling this person you're going to die. And nobody wants to say that, even if it's true. So what I'm finding is that these conversations by and large are not happening. And when you ask, that's really astonishing. There's an American project that's called a group that's called the Conversation Project. Phenomenal. And what they do is they help people have this conversation about end of life preferences. So they make it something that is not, does not have to happen on someone's deathbed. And what I propose is even more radical than that, is to create a practice of talking about end-of-life preferences. Because, and I'm very sorry to burst anybody's bubble, but A, we're all going to die, like really, in a long, long time from now, I hope, but all going to die. And B, we don't really know that it's going to be in a long, long time from now. 
So let's sort of start preparing for it, even just by talking to our loved ones about our preferences. Would we want to be intubated? What sort of end of life do we envision? Would we want to fight with medical means till the end? Or do we want to say, given ABC conditions, I would just prefer to receive palliative care, which means I want to be in as little pain as possible, but don't try to cure me if you don't think it's really going to cure me. And these are things that really are a bummer. Let's not put it scientifically, let's just put it bluntly. These are conversations that are never fun to have, but they're an enormous relief that moment comes, God forbid, and you know, thank God you're with us, Claudia. And that's wonderful and amazing. But you're not in an age where you're supposed to have end-of-life experiences or near-life, near-death experiences. And then it happens. Then it happens and it hits you. So to the degree that our loved ones know what we want, we are making their lives so much easier. We're making our lives and our deaths so much easier. And what the Conversation Project found was that 91% of Americans wanted to talk about end-of-life preferences, but under a third of Americans actually got to talk about it. So everyone's afraid. Everyone is unsure what the etiquette is, what's right, when's the right time. It's like you know, never know where, where to put the cup and, and the fork and you get confused. And this is worse you just don't know when's the right time. So what I'm proposing is to do this around milestone birthdays. And I'll tell you why, for two reasons. One is you should do this the day before a milestone birthday, because the next day you have a party and you're going to forget the depressing conversation. And another is that there's a lot of research showing that these milestone birthdays are your times or periods, they extend, we, we think about them before and after they happen, where we take stock of our life. More so when you turn 50, 50 than when you turn 51. When you turn 50, it's a big one. Like we're 40, you're like, what have I accomplished so far? When you turn 41, you just go for a beer. So let's use the milestone birthdays as a stopping point, as a little cue, as a little nudge, if you will, for us to talk about these things. And may it be a redundant conversation because we'll live to our next milestone birthday. But what we'll be doing is building a practice of talking about that. And should it occur, and it will occur at some point, hopefully as far as possible in time, we and our loved ones will have spoken about, and that's gonna be less alien to us. So I know it's, it's a bit radical, but it's also radical in my mind that nobody talks about end of life, even if it's staring them in the eye. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that's also important. I'm actually kind of shocked by that number. 91% want to talk about end of, in some ways I'm shocked because I think that um, this desire goes very non-verbalized because I just, I, I don't, um, you know, so it's interesting because I think I, I was actually putting myself in a position as you were saying that number of taking, you know, a survey like this and yeah, I, my answer would probably be yes also, but I don't think anybody around me would think, you know, may, may not think that. So, um, you know, it's interesting. It's like some, some internal knowing and desire that we should be talking about this, but we're not. Mm -hmm. And so that number is, is, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's almost everybody. So, and I love the simplicity of 
of the milestone birthdays because it's something that we can easily remember. And I also love doing it the day before so we can celebrate and, <laughs> and have that, have that dinner party that, that um, everybody wants to go to that you and I won't be at. <laughs> exactly. um, um, so that's fantastic. And I do, I really do encourage, that's why I had the death doula on here a couple of times, because I do really think we, we would all benefit from talking about it more. And when it's difficult to do so within our smaller circle circles, then I'm happy to be a platform to start those conversations and, um, and open the door to that conversation. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, are there any last, and I know you have tons of pearls of wisdom in the book. So I know this is a difficult question to answer, but are there any last pearls of wisdom that um, are significant enough that you would like to cover here that I may not have asked? I think you asked a lot of questions and I'm, I'm very happy to just have shared this time with you and this uh, openness with you really. And it's, it's wonderful for me because I it took a long time writing the book. It's amazing for me to hear it spoken by you. It's an amazing experience. And I hope it's going to be shared by a lot of people who read it and it helps them. It helps them in their life. Even if it helps them 10 years down the road, they'll say, oh my God, I read that book. Wait, what did she say? Oh, I remember. Wow. That's just going to be so meaningful for me. So I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that we're doing this together and you're helping me spread the word, Claudia. That's really, that means a lot to me. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I can speak from experience of having read the book and learning about your work that it's unquestionably going to be um, impactful in ways that you probably won't even know for years to come, which is, which is so, that's the great thing is, and even for podcasts like this and, and things that kind of go out there for its longevity that we just, we have no idea the types of impacts that will happen. And I know that it will be very significant with your book. So highly recommended, really, really great book. I love your perspective. It's not one that I have um, had the, the honor of knowing or being a part of before. So I, I really have enjoyed it. The book again is your life depends on it, what you can do to make better choices about your health. So share with the audience what the anticipated um, launch and release date is and what websites they should know to find you. Absolutely. So the launch date is September 28th. The name of the book is Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. I am on Twitter as Talia, T-A-L-Y-A, Miron, M-I-R-O-N, Schatz, S-H-A-T-Z. That's a mouthful, Talia Miron Schatz. Easy to find me there. It's also very easy to find me on LinkedIn. And I am more than happy to answer your questions and hear your thoughts and your comments and anything that you experienced when reading your life depends on it, which you can do to make better choices about your health. Thank you so much, Claudia. Oh, thank you so much for the work that you do. I love that you followed your passion after having that patient experience and that you listen to your heart because so many people are better off for it and will continue to be better off for it. And the entirety mm -hmm. of the system needs you. And, you know, they, we talk about the brokenness of the system and it's this type of a collaborative approach that we need because it really does take people from all types of backgrounds, research, passions to, to make this a better system. And I love that you are playing a part in that. So thank you. Fantastic. Great. Thanks to all the listeners who stuck with us and kept on listening. Yes. And we'll have a big, a big dinner party for all of them and us. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. 
Thank you so much to Talia for an amazing conversation full of so much goodness. I want to listen to it over and over and over. Um, I really look forward to this book launch. You all will find tons of value in this book and in Talia's work. So thank you again for being patient with me as I took a small break. We are back with an amazing lineup of guests. Thank you for sticking with me to mind your wellness.